Iron Golf Mind podcast, and today we're speaking with former Wallaby and 100-plus game super rugby player Adam Fryer. Adam's uh, had a stellar career in rugby, and now he's a general manager with the Rebels in communication and media. Adam, welcome to the podcast. I, I dare say it's probably the first uh, podcast I've ever done, Peter, that's had golf aligned to it. I'm uh, not much of a golfer, uh, but certainly uh, very happy to be on the show. But uh, just speaking to you off air before, there are so many synergies between golf, high performance, professional sport, rugby, uh, communications, like it is all out of one Almac, and, and I really think that, um, yeah, it, it is great to be on the show, particularly as a sportsman, but I'll declare now I am not a golfer. <laughs> but golf, I mean, the one thing about golf is it seems to be the second sport for so many sports people because it's not going to, you know, it doesn't hurt your body to play golf. And a lot of the time, a professional sportsman, it has lots of downtime. You know, they can't train all the time, and uh, being on a golf course is certainly a lot healthier and better for them than being, you know, other places they could be. Oh, look, I dare say that's you're spot on. Uh, and you'll notice that in a lot of athletes, in particular cricketers with great hand-eye coordination, do play golf. And look, out of all the Wallabies, George Gregan, fantastic golfer. Morgan Turanui, fantastic golfer. Julian Huxley is another one who was a, a tremendous golfer. So all of the, the players that had a really fine touch, and everyone used to say they had to have freakish skills, um, usually were very good with a stick, racket, that be a cricket bat, a golf club, or a tennis uh, racket, and a ball. They were fantastic. And you, you could almost pick who the golfers were out of all the team. Uh, gold kickers, uh, that being Julian Huxley, George Gregan with his accuracy, with his passing. Definitely, uh, they, they took a lot of money off each other on the golf course, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, well, that's good too. And, uh, you know, I haven't played with any of those guys, but I do know that they... They are really keen golfers, and I think the, the cricketers would love to be a lot of like to play professional golf too. Some of them. More importantly, to you, so you played for 14 years at Super Rugby level, which in a you know combative sport like rugby's, it's a it's a long time to play. So um, you know it, it's fantastic achievement to have played for that period of time. And I do know that you ended your career uh, with injuries, which I guess. Inevitably, you know, it, it's likely to happen to uh, to most a- most athletes. And I'm also guessing that when you first started playing, there was an you know an ability, a natural ability that got you to um, to the level you had, and you achieved, and then you trained and developed that until you um, were good enough to play with the Wallabies, and then sort of kept on training. As you're going along, what were some of the the challenges that that you may have faced? in order to feel like, well, if I want to go from this level of rugby to the next level, what are the things that you felt you needed to do? It's a really interesting question because a lot of people will usually lead in with that question is that I obviously had the talent at the start and I was picked up, but I I never saw it that way. I didn't think I was ever a talented footballer. Mm -hmm. I used to look at – so I went to school with uh, a rugby union and league player called Brian Cross. Now, he was an athlete. Um, now, he ended up playing for the Sydney City Roosters at the time. They're now the, the Roosters, but also played for the Wallabies. Almost a dual international. He was just shy of playing origin. He ran the 100-metre sprint. He won shot put. He was the best cricketer in the state at schoolboys. He was an Australian schoolboy rugby player. 
uh, it was a free. Uh, and so then that that's talent for me. But I was always very small uh, and I was always uh, challenged. Like I, I was never in the team because I was always small. No, I was never uh, in the team because I probably wasn't the most skillful. So that sort of gave me some resilience, which I found really helped me in the back end of my career. I was never the most talented and I'll never claim I was, but I always was the hardest working. And I think that's one positive and also negative because I worked so hard. I used to put a lot of pressure on myself. I used to put a lot of pressure on myself of being perfect. The early part of my career, it was probably my biggest weakness is I sought perfection in everything. And I think that's, there is a relationship with what I went through from a golfing point of view is that no one's perfect. Uh, And anyone can tell you has got the perfect swing or, or anything like that. If you, miss a, a two-foot putter and you've got the best swing or you're the best putter in the world, you're going to be thinking about that. So mm. I, I really used to be really tough on myself, and I think that it took me from that 25 to, to 28 where I was under your McKenzie to not worry about it and some things I put in place with, uh, reading books and sports psychologists as such. But I was never the most talented, and I was just very lucky that I was very a very small hooker and the coach that picked me up at the time was also a very small hooker in his day in being Eddie Jones. And he was, he taught me very early on that size didn't matter. If you were good enough, you were big enough and uh, put a lot of faith in me. And I was able to get, get to the international level by about 22 playing against players who were 30 kilos heavier than me. So it was, it was a quite a risky move by Eddie to pick me, especially as a 22 year old who's 90 I was 98 kilos on record, but I used to fill up my pockets full of sand and drink three liters <laughs> yeah. of water before weigh-in. So I really played most of my career at about 93 kilos. And to come up against players 30 kilos my uh, ahead of me was was quite normal. But you adapt, and and as I say, if you if you're a golfer with a, a great long game, or you know you're a good putter, you you go to where your strengths are and you usually build what you, you're not so good at or where your talents don't lie as in other areas. And I was never the biggest, but I certainly wanted to be the most efficient and the fittest. Yeah. It's interesting you said earlier that you felt that the perfectionism was a weakness. How How is it a weakness? Uh, I, I really don't think that any high-performance professional athlete, and prove me, I know you're a golfing coach, you cannot seek perfection. Uh, and I, I did that because I was, if you missed a line-out throw, I would carry that with me. If I missed a tackle, I would carry that with me. And, and you know, I, I was such a firm believer in the end of my career. It was very mental, uh, my sport, rugby, because you need to be able to get up for a scrum. You need to be able to get up to make a big run. You need to be able to get up to make that big hit. But you need to be able to walk up to the mark and completely relax yourself. And you just, you're in all different positions on the field, not just physically, but also emotionally and mentally. But I just found that I was always looking for perfection. You can't get it. I don't know if you can get it in golf. I don't know if you can get it in cricket. I don't know if you can get it in, in any sport. You can't get it in rugby. And as soon as I let go of that, I was able to go a lot further. Mm, I agree. I, I think there's a, a huge difference between perfection perfectionism and excellence i think excellence is something to aspire to but perfection really by definition it's almost unachievable because it it, it sort of says you know you never make mistakes you, you know everything is done as well as it could possibly be done which of course is as sports people we know that that's that's really not that's not possible yeah and then look the, the excellence thing is an interesting one I, I used to always say that i would always want to be put in a position 
to prove my worth. And, and that's, that's sort of the thing that, that I had, especially as a young player, like I always used to, to do that. I didn't want to win the game, but just prove my worth. And that was something that sort of, I look back on the early years and the best thing I did was see a sports psychologist early. Uh, and then they were able to, to teach me a lot of tools and rules around, especially with line-out throwing. Um, and that's such a huge part of the game as a hooker. It's interesting you talk about sports psychologists because it's it's a perception that's changing, but the perception that has been around for a long, long time is that anyone who needs to see a sports psychologist has something wrong with them. Oh, depression. <laughs> but but then that's 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 the most the most interesting part of sports psychology is that you go see a sports psychologist when you're out of form. You go mm. see a sports psychologist when you're got the yips or but for me I, I saw a sports psychologist when everything was flying because I, I used to be a bit nervous to say well hang on why is everything going so well I saw a sports psychologist for, for a number of years who was a psychologist by trade but he was a sports acquisition coach I think mm-hmm. um, so or a skills acquisition acquisitions coach and so it was a lot easier for me to go I'm going to go see my, my uh, throwing coach um, and it was, and, and I know even back then I would not say I'm going to go see a sports psychologist to talk about my throwing. It would be I'm going to go see my throwing coach. So I still think there's a stigma about it, and it won't change. Uh, not for till everyone gets over. I think it's a bigger issue than just being sports psychologist. I think it's a men's health issue. I think you could do, you could dig so far into professional athletes and now retired that are suffering with men's health, depression, uh, all sorts of things. Like imagine being a superhero for the good part of 15 years of your you know, as a young man in your life, and then all of a sudden take away those superhero powers and let them off into into the wild, they're, they're not going to survive the same way. So I'm a big advocate for, for men's health. I think that um, although personally I've, I've been very lucky, I transitioned well and I had a great support network around me. I always had a balance in life. I was always either with the books or always had an active involvement with the Rugby Union Players Association. I tried to work one day a week. I found that balance thing. A lot of people just use that, oh, you know, I've got a balance in life and they don't actually really live it. But uh, I dare say that had a huge impact on me walking straight out of rugby and straight into a job. And I actually don't even feel like I've retired, except when I get out of bed some mornings and my body doesn't work. But um, the balance is a huge one. But I I don't, the the whole men's health thing is is an issue, but probably another conversation. Yeah, exactly. Actually, it's funny when you said you get out of bed and your body doesn't work. I, I was waiting for you to say, I get out of bed and my body does work. Well, I did. Because it hasn't been knocked around. No, no. It, it, it's, uh, I, the reason for my retirement was due to, um, I had two back operations, a lumbar disectomy, L4, L5S1, which I'm sure a lot of golfers would have that same disc issue. And I went in and got two operations, fixed it to a degree. Uh, but lost feeling in one of my legs. And at one stage, I lost feeling in both legs. And I was able to come back and, and get out another season. And I said, I sort of promised myself if I could last this season, I would, um, I would hang them up. Mm-hmm. But if I, and, but also said to myself, if I can't get back this year, I'm not going out until I actually can prove myself. So once I did it, I was pretty happy to, to hang them up. But I'm nowhere near, uh, it, yeah, it's taken its toll. Uh, my brother's a small person. My mother's a small lady. You know, I'm definitely, if you were, a horse breeder you wouldn't be putting my family together to, to develop a front row forward um, I shouldn't be anywhere near 90 kilos and I played at about 95 and yeah and it's taking its toll now it's hard to lose it to be honest <laughs> it's interesting that just even in the short period of time we've been speaking you've been talking about a number of times about 
you know, proving yourself and proving. And um, you know, I, I get that what you said earlier is that at school you weren't the greatest athlete, so it was all about you know being better and doing more. Tell me about that drive. Where's that come from? Look, I I don't know, and um, it's funny. I've just got a young daughter, Florence, now, who everyone keeps telling me, oh, she's got your determination. I, I don't see it. I don't. I just it's the norm for me. But I I've, I think it just came from always being the shortest, mm. always being the smallest, uh, having a a brother that was bigger, a bit of a bully, and I was always proving to him. And it, it, you could almost paint it as a bit of a soap soap opera or a story, but. You know, I, I just never really felt comfortable in any environment that I was where I needed to be, and I, that was my work ethic. And and it, and it really stemmed from Eddie Jones, my first Wallaby coach and first coach at the Brumbies, where he just said, mate, you're the smallest and you're the shortest, so you've got to be the fittest, you've got to be the strongest, and you've got to be, you know, on top of every aspect. So anyone who comes near you and says you're too small, they just go and see the high-performance charts and you're smashing everyone, and, and that's what I did. I wanted to be the strongest, fittest, and... I ended up doing that, and and if he wasn't there driving me, uh, and he, I bring him up a lot, and I even tell young kids now, like having someone that bad cop, you know, you've got your good cop and your bad cop, but he was so hard on the young players early on. I think it's missed these days. I think young kids can come in and dictate terms where he just grounded me from day one, and I haven't been able to grow out of it since. I would never change, and I would not even nearly expect it any other way. I'm very fortunate, and if if I didn't have that drive, I wouldn't be anywhere near where I ever got to. Mm. You've also mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of reading and the fact that you did take the initiative to go and see a sports psychologist. So through the readings and, and conversations that you may have had with the sports psychologist, were there any aha moments? You know, something that's like, well, you know, this is so strong a leverage point from performance perspective why didn't I know this before or, you know, I now understand something that I didn't understand before. What were the aha moments for you? You'll always have an aha moment. You, you gain that with wisdom. You always look back on your career and think that you could have done things differently. And I see people retire, especially elite athletes, and say, you know, I wouldn't have done it any other way. I think that's bullshit because there's a lot of people that would look back on their career and change things. Mm. The only regret that I have is that I actually didn't learn about myself early enough and I'm going to put this in context the best book I've read was about not about Nick Shahidi famous Ramwick and Wallaby it wasn't about Phil Kearns and it wasn't about any rugby player even rugby league player it was actually about a tennis coach and it was about the ability to separate yourselves into two beings a teller and a doer and that was uh, the inner game of tennis and I know that they released an inner game of golf as well and, I'm, and it is a paperback it's on a and the, the pages were yellow. It was an awful-looking front cover, and it had a photo, almost like a computer image of a... Of a I remember it vividly, uh, and Eddie's the one who actually gave it to me and recommended it, and he's, I've still got it here, and he signed it. But you, you pick up this book, and it's almost like 40 years ago. It's a book on Scientology, if you look at the cover. It's just so... You take it back from it. How's this going to help me? And I, uh, I had it... I probably read it three times, and the best thing about it was is that I peeled back all all the layers and, and all the physical attributes you have. You can do the best bench, you can do the best speed, run, squat, whatever. But if you're doer, so, so that's your doer, but if you're not trusting the teller, that person in your head that's actually the one that is is providing 
all the spark in it, uh, it, it won't work. And the best example I always give young kids that are playing, and I draw a reference from that book, is that you don't walk over to a light switch at night time when there's no light. You don't look at it. You don't pull up your finger. You don't move your finger up and down to see if your finger's working and then move it closer and then flick it and then the light goes on. You go, okay, there it is. It's just a very natural instinctive reaction. It's, I need light. I walk over to it and click it. So if you're a footballer and you've got a ball in your hand and you need to throw that ball, you don't think, Am I, is my chest up? Is my arm straight? Is, you know, is that market moving? Is You don't trip it all back and pull out all the detail to confuse yourself. You should be able to just pick up a ball and do it. Mm-hmm. And that's what it taught me. But in essence, you, that book is null and void if you're not doing the work on the side. So I needed to, my doer needed to trust the teller completely. If there was any doubt, if I didn't train, if I hadn't done the practice that week, if I knew that I had hadn't done everything I could to be right for that game. My, they, these two people in my head would be talking to each other and going, mate, you, you haven't done the work. So I needed to make sure that I had the utmost faith that I'd done the work. And then you can pick up these sports side books and you think, oh, you know, well, you know, power of thinking and all that sort of stuff. And you can read them. And even I've actually flicked through a couple of Anthony Robbins' books. That they don't work unless you've done the actual hard work behind it. Those things are about bringing hard work to life. And in a game of tennis for mine, I'll pass it on to any young kid. And in fact, at the Rebels in my first couple of years, a couple of players had some issues with their line-out throwing, and I, I handed it on to them. And whether it had the same effect, I don't know. You know, I mean, in your role as a, a leader and a mentor, which is exactly what you're doing when you're giving that book, is a huge head start for them, particularly if they um, if they read it and and um, and then you know find out how they apply. In fact, just even ask them how they applied the what they learn in the book and then you'll know whether they've read it or not. But yeah, it's a brilliant book. I remember I actually bought the inner game of golf as a hardback. Uh, the first time I went out playing tournaments myself and I remember I bought it in Adelaide prior to a tournament and that was 1981. So, and uh, inner game of tennis came out before that. Yeah. I think the inner game of tennis, I, I, I dare say they're singing off the same song sheet, but they say they're, they're very similar. And, just even going back before that with the inner game of tennis, like, and this is how much I did not want to see a sports psych. I actually lied to a coach once where he said, mate, you need to go see a sports psych. You're too hard on yourself and all that sort of thing. And I said, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And I was not even nearly doing it. I won't tell you which who this coach mm-hmm. is, but he coached super rugby. Didn't go. He did his background research and checked up. And he, and he said to me, um, how's it all going? I said, oh, yeah, it's going well. And then he came, pulled me aside and said, mate, I spoke to the sports side. You haven't gone anywhere near it, and that was a sort of t- turning point for me to to mm. say, well, I'm not going to not going to be going around telling lies. So I actually did it and lived it, and I do think that it sort of saved my career. And that's as a 21 year old to be caught out lying to your coach, and then it, it was a great moment in in my history to 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 be able to turn the corner and get involved and pick up this book and 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 really get behind it. And I I just think very hard to sell that to young kids these days that the power of what you believe in and believing in yourself and not seeking perfection but actually just being the best prepared you can uh, it's very hard message to get through to young kids because young kids now want it they want it early they want to get to the top quick and they want to stay there for you know as long as possible but the people that get there very quick don't usually last as long hmm. so it's interesting you said that you you came across the the importance of the metal skills uh, at 21, which is very early in your career. Mm. 
So no, no, no it certainly certainly was. Uh, it was important in the fact that it just wasn't trendy back then. Like it wasn't. Everyone was it was all about getting bigger and stronger, um, not about you know talking to yourself and me trying to explain to teammates that there's a teller and a doer and a um, you know and that your your mind is like turning on a light switch. It's uh, I probably would have been better off rocking up in drag to be honest. Well, that might have had an interesting effect on the field. <laughs> if you're working with young players, seeing young players and speaking with them, which, which you do every day, what are the things that you look for that give you clues to this player is likely to perform well this week, this team is likely to go well this year, uh, this player understands what's going on or, or, or doesn't? What are, the, what are the, the, uh, the signs for you? It's a really interesting question because... So I look through all the communications said by a team and I'll actually build a case to, to whoever was asked for it to say what they're saying and try and work out where their heads are at. If you're talking about leading, if you ever talk about freshening up for the week, it might be considered as disrespectful to the opposition because you haven't treated the week as though it is your grand final. Um, you know, if you're talking about, if you automatically see a number that a team or a player has spoken about for example we'd like to win four out of the five matches and this week is a very important match to us they're already counting that next week so it's 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 actually not living in the now uh in in sport you can easily get carried away because there's so many peripheral things that will distract you yeah social media reading media um looking at tables uh, other teams form slipping and you'll always look, and I still do it, and I did as a player as well, that you'll look, oh, we're here on the table now. If we lose this game, these guys are here. It's almost like John Nash had a beautiful mind. You can sort of picture it all together and see things differently, and they all pop up. But you're constantly looking ahead. That happens a lot. It really does in sport, and I can pick it up, I wouldn't say easily, but you can certainly read into messaging and communications and PR where a team's head's at. The good coaches are the ones that can actually control the message very well. The challenges in a marketing sense is you need to sell hope. You need to be aspirational with your communications. You need to sell to an audience. You need to get a crowd there. You need to sell memberships. But the coach's priority should be that all team communications should be aligned and they shouldn't be talking about anything else but performance. Mm. And, you know, I've never heard a coach of a team come out and say that they're going to get rolled this week or this week they're very nervous, they're going to lose. They've always got to... It's I call it fluff. There's there's all once you pull the fluff apart and actually find the core of what they're saying, you can easily work out where a team's heads at. You know what I just remembered? There was some research done on optimism and pessimism by a guy in the US named Dr. Martin Seligman, and what he did is he tracked over the course of a year. It was either American football or baseball. I can't remember which one it was, and he tracked the comments coming from coaches and players of those teams each week and made predictions based on those comments how the teams would perform and across the year he predicted accurately which teams would finish near the top of the ladder and which ones would finish near the bottom of the ladder so the you know the messages sort of coming out even though they weren't talking about we'll win we'll lose but just the types of, of language that they were using uh, he accurately predicted it no, look, it's 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 interesting, and I, as I say, I'd love to be, and my job in PR, it is media communications, they call it PR, but I'm heavily tied towards the perception being the reality. I would love for my coach to come out and be completely honest 
every day of the week, which he is, um, but certainly cages it up sometimes. But perception meeting reality is, is a very important thing in sport. Again, when there's so many different peripheral factors like marketing, like when there's a commercial component to it, keeping sponsors happy, it's uh, it's a challenge. But I think the best thing about where I work at the Rebels is that we are very honest and we are very open and transparent in any form, whether we're winning or we're losing or during a crisis. I think part of our brand is that we are quite honest and that sits well with being the Rebels that we are. So a young player comes to you and, and this young player is... Uh, maybe 17 or 18, and they say, Adam, I need to chat with you. I recognise that there's probably some areas that I can improve. What are you looking for? What advice would you give to a young player saying, these are the priorities, this is what you need to, this is what you need to do, this is what the areas you need to look at? Well, I wrote in the newspaper the last three years of my career, my final article that I wrote before I um, retired is living in the moment and I think the problem is with I'll, I'll use rugby rugby as an example and I hope anyone can draw reference to the difference between their sport and mine but if I played second grade for Randwick I'd always be thinking about why aren't I in first grade and if I ever played in the under 20s for Australia which was a huge achievement I'd be going well why aren't I in the Wallaby squad and if I was playing super rugby and sitting on the bench as a 19-year-old, which I was, I'd be going, this is ridiculous. I need to be starting. I never actually embraced the moment that I was in at that point in time. And it, and, it, and it stings me to this day, like I should have actually embraced being playing in second grade and playing with 35-year-old players that have actually been there and around that and learn off them. Again, with, with wisdom, you can pick these things up. But I never actually lived in the moment and it's a corny and a cheesy thing to say, but if you went through your whole rugby career and embraced each step as it was and had the utmost confidence that you would end up being there if you just did everything right, you would enjoy yourself so much more. I'm not saying I didn't enjoy my career, but I felt at times that I didn't live in the moment. And when I when I played at New South Wales, I was at the top, top of my game. So I was, at, I was in that moment. I was very lucky. Then it was taken away from me from injury. And when I was reincarnated with another club here in Melbourne, it wasn't about the next step. It was actually, I was pretty lucky to, to always live in that moment. So if I can say as a young player from sort of that 18 to 22, I was very needed to be in front. I never embraced being right there and right now. Then I had, I was at that time at the top, but still it's a bit of a blur. But at about 26, 27, where I've come back and out of injury, it was always about being in the moment. And I'll always explain to kids that, you know, you need to embrace where you're at now. Don't ever want to grow up too quickly because every player on their way out wants to be younger and every player on the way in wants to be older. But you just need to embrace where you're at in, in any part of your career. It's an important one, very hard to deliver and explain to any young player. They're all, uh, yeah, first question they ask me is, how can I become a Wallaby? And I'm going, well, you have to embrace where you're at right now to become a Wallaby. And that's uh, you need to enjoy being a, a young rookie or enjoy person that, that's you know nowhere near the 22 but working really hard with a, a, a with all your mates. And that is uh, is what it is. That's fantastic. And that's tremendous advice. Adam, thanks so much for the chat. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. And there's you know so many good messages that you've given, not just to aspiring, Wallaby, aspiring Wallabies, 
but you know people in other sports and pe- even people outside of sports. Yeah, and you know what? And the one message I will tell people is that you don't have to love one sport. Everyone knows me as Adam, the rugby guy, because I played for rugby. But deep down, they wouldn't know that I'm a Melbourne Heart member. They don't know that my dad was a rugby league player and first grade coach. I, I probably know more about rugby league than I do about any other sport. I think the best thing about Australia and being Australian is that you can play every sport, love it, enjoy it. And, uh, you know, I think that's a, a true asset in our country. Exactly. Thanks for your time. Thanks uh, very much, Peter.